Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for that promise that as we wait upon you, our strength shall be renewed. I pray that you'll strengthen our minds and our hearts right now to be open to your word. In your name we pray, amen. We've been, in the various sermons that I've done over the last several weeks, we've been hitting the books we called the shorties, or I called the shorties. Three books that are often not preached upon or talked about much that I've heard of, at least in my life within the church. We looked first at Jude and Philemon, and today we are looking at Obadiah. Uh, in the course of, of looking at these books, I had kind of thought that, well, maybe they're not preached on very often because uh, they're so short and there may not be a whole lot to say from them, when in fact there is much to say from them. Uh, in Philemon, for instance, I preached in one direction, and Frank sent me a wonderful document that uh, showed me some other points of view on the book, and there's, there's all kinds of perspectives on these things. I also found out that there might be another reason what people don't preach from. They have some challenging, they're challenging ways to look at, at, at things, and Obadiah is no less uh, as such. If you want a challenge on, on, uh, in writing or exegeting a passage, then go to the Minor Prophets and enjoy that for a bit. Um, Definitely gives your mind a work. But we are in today in Obadiah, the shortest book in the Old Testament. It's just a mere 21 verses. It's not a long book, so it doesn't have to be a very long sermon. You can say amen to that if you like. And in fact, I'm going to be looking just at the first 14 verses uh, of Obadiah today. And I'm not looking at it necessarily from the position of that we are Judah, but rather what does it say to us if we are being like Edom, one of the key groups in this book? We know nothing of the author other than his name is Obadiah and he had a vision. There's no genealogy within this book as there often is within uh, the books of, pro uh, of the prophets. There's no reference of his own personal connection to the story or how he relates within the story or his own personal journey within uh, Israel or Judah. There's just the beginning verse, verse 1, the vision of Obadiah. And I'd invite you to open your Bibles there to Obadiah. It's just after Amos and just before the book of Jonah, the book of Obadiah. And it begins there with that first verse, the vision of Obadiah. And then it says, thus says the Lord God concerning Edom. We have heard a report from the Lord, and a messenger has been sent among the nations. Rise up, let us rise up, let us rise against her for battle. This vision is not a happy vision for the most part. It's not a peaceful vision. It's not a, a gentle vision. It's not a calm and, and uh, comforting vision in, in many ways for, for Edom. It is a vision of battle against Edom from the Lord himself, against one of Judah's neighbors, Judah being the people of God. And the neighbor whom the vision is against is, is Edom. And it says God is calling forth for battle to be waged against Edom. The Lord, though, when he calls for this battle, he is not doing so in that he's calling Judah to fight against Edom or he's calling Israel to fight against Edom. He himself is the one that's rising up in battle against this nation. He says, Behold, 
In verse 2, Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You shall be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rock, in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, Who will bring me down to the ground? Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, from where I will bring you down, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. Edom is a nation, what this is talking about is Edom is a nation that had great confidence in their geographical position. She is a nation felt she was invincible from the high ground on which she stood. She felt that, 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 that she was well protected by her, her lofty and her high uh, status, geographical location. And looking around, Edom did not see an opponent who could uh, overthrow her or overthrow her position or gain an advantage on her. But this pride in her heart, as the scripture reads, deceived her because she forgot that even though she was high and lifted up, that there was still one higher than her. She forgot to look up. Her pride had thought, I am above everyone else, not recognizing that there was still one above her. The Bible says, though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, it says, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. The Lord is saying here, you are positioned high up, but one from even higher up among the stars will oppose you and bring you down. The vision continues in verse 5. If thieves came to, came to you, if plunderers came by night, how you have been destroyed, would they not steal only enough for themselves? If grape gatherers came to you, would they not leave gleanings? How Esau has been pillaged, his treasures sought out. In verses 2 through 4, the Lord tells the nation of Edom that they will be deprived of their geographical strength, their geographical advantage. He will overcome their geographical advantage. In verses 5 and, and 6, in verses 5 and 6, the Lord tells them that they will be deprived now of their agricultural strength. The grape was a staple of Edom's, of, of, of Edom's crops. If you go back to Numbers in chapter 20, I believe it's verse 6, number chapter 20, in which the Israelites are asking to pass through the territory of Edom, and, and they, they promise, we will not even go into your vineyards, we will not take from your vineyards, but, but they are refused to be allowed to pass through. The grape was a staple of, of Edom's crops, and, and the Lord says, if thieves came and stole from you, you would at least still have something left because they would take all that they needed. If, if someone came and gleaned from your fields, there would still be something left because you have, there they would take all that they need and there would, of course, be spots that were missed. But God says to this, to this nation, not only will I remove you from your geographical high spot, not only will I remove that protection from you, but, but I will remove as well the strength of your agricultural system, the very strength. I will, I will remove it completely and entirely. He says, how Esau has been pillaged, his treasure sought out, even that which you have hidden, even that which you have hidden in the caves and in the rocks, I will remove that from you as well. Verse 7 continues, all your allies have driven you to your border. Those at peace with you have deceived you. They have prevailed against you. Those who eat your bread have set a trap beneath you. You have no understanding. The Lord says, your geographical strength will be removed. 
Your, your agricultural strength will be removed. Then the Lord says, your friends, the people that you think are your friends, the people that eat amongst you and, and hang out with you, those friends will actually turn on you and, and press you out of your own nation. Even your friends will turn on you. And then in verse 8, will I not in that day, declares the Lord, destroy the wise men out of Edom and understanding out of Mount Esau, and your mighty men shall be dismayed, O Timon, so that every man from Mount Esau will be cut off by slaughter. The Lord then finally tells them, and at last, I will even remove those who are wise amongst you, those who are strong and who are brave amongst you. Edom was actually known for the, the wise men within their territory. One of Job's friends, you may remember, was a wise man from Eden, Edom. And, and, and in the book of Job, it actually speaks of the wisdom of those from Edom. And in the book of Jeremiah, there is also a mention of the wisdom from Edom. This was something that they, that they believed in, that they relied upon. And God, slowly but surely, is, is all these things that they have put their confidence in, their geographical strength, their, their crops, their friends, their allies, and now their wise men. God said, I will utterly remove all of these things. In other words, when the Lord goes to battle against Edom, everything is loss. Everything is lost. So why would Edom be facing such great destruction? And this is what I want us to focus on today. Why would Edom be facing such great destruction? Verse 10. Verse 10. Because the violence done to your brother Jacob shall cover you and you shall be cut off forever. Because of the violence done to your brother Jacob. Now Jacob here represents the people of God. We can pause for a moment. You remember in the passage earlier we heard the name Esau mentioned in reference to Edom. We now hear the name Jacob. It is because Edom through blood is related to Judah and to Israel. Relation, there is a relation through blood. The Edomites were the direct descendants of Esau. Genesis chapter 36 and, and verse 1. Now these are the generations of Esau who is Edom. And we know that all the way back with, with Jacob and Esau, there was a conflict that began. You remember that, that Esau sold his birthright to, to Jacob. He, he was in haste, sold his birthright. And then later, Jacob deceived uh, their father Isaac and, 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 and uh, deceived him from, receiving that special, from Esau receiving that special blessing. And though there was reconciliation at times, pretty much the history between Edom or the, the offspring of Esau, Edom, and the offspring of Jacob, Judah, and Israel has been this one of contention, this one of, of war and, and conflict and strife. And so here in Obadiah 10 we read, Because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you, and you shall be cut off forever. Now what did Esau actually do? What was the violence that Esau actually committed? What was, what was this, this harm that Esau had actually caused or Edom had actually caused towards the people of God? Look at verse 11. It says, On that day you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. 
you were like one of them. Here is the interesting thing to me about this passage that you may notice. What was the violence done to Judah by Edom? You may notice that it was not direct violence. Edom was not the, the soldiers that were, that, were, that were rushing in upon Judah. They were not the ones that were going into to Jerusalem and ransacking Jerusalem. They were not the ones that were taking the wise men out of Jerusalem and, and taking them captive. It was not a direct violence that Edom had actually done. The violence was that they did not stand up for their brother when they were under attack. They were aloof, disinterested, observing from a distance when there was another being oppressed. Isn't it interesting that God sees violence not only as someone doing the direct violence, but also those who are being silent when others are being oppressed. God sees violence not only as us physically attacking someone, but also as us standing by and watching as someone weaker and, 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 and not with such strength is subjugated by the strong. This might be something for us to think about as Christians, to think about in the times in which we are living when we, we stand silently by or fall into line behind those that, that bellow violent and offensive rhetoric. There are many within our society, some getting more attention than others, that bellow things of, of hatred and, and, and animosity. And even Christians seem to be following in line behind those ideas. The Bible says that it is violence, even if we don't speak those words, if we stand aloof while others are doing such things, even if we don't commit those actions, if we stand aloof and allow those things to take place and do nothing, that we are also guilty of the violence. That is what God is saying to Edom. I will remove your geographical strength. I will remove your agricultural strength. I will remove the strength of your friends. I will remove the, the, the strength of your wise men and your, your strong warriors because you have committed violence. How have we committed violence? Because you stood by and were silent while others were being oppressed and put down. The text continues on. But do not gloat over the day of your brother in the day of his misfortune, do not rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their ruin. Do not boast in the day of distress. Do not enter the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Do not gloat over his disaster in the day of his calamity. Do not loot his wealth in the day of his calamity. Do not stand at the crossroads to cut off his fugitives. Do not hand over his survivors in the day of distress. As I read this book of Obadiah, I began thinking about something. I was thinking about the historical account of Judah being conquered by Babylon. This is the time period that most scholars believe this is taking place in, is that what, 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 what Obadiah is writing about is the time period in which Babylon, Babylon came in and conquered Judah and took out the wise men and, and destroyed Jerusalem and, and left, left uh, Jerusalem basically barren. The time period of Daniel and the time period of, of Jeremiah. Most scholars believe that is that time period. And I was thinking about the historical context of that. I was remembering some of the things that, I, that I've studied and read in that Judah, Judah was no saint. 
Judah was no saint. In fact, if you read the Bible, we realize one of the reasons why Babylon was able to come in and take uh, uh, control of this territory, one of the reasons why Babylon was able to come overrun Jerusalem was because they had opened themselves up through their sinful action, through their sinful ways. So here is a group that, that is receiving the consequences of their own decisions. And yet, even though they're receiving the consequences of their own decisions, God still says to Edom, it is not your place to kick this nation while they are down. He says, don't gloat over them in the day of their misfortune. Don't, don't rejoice because of their ruin. Don't boast in the day of their distress. It is not just a command for Edom in that day and age, but it is also a command, a universal command that goes out. One of the scholars I read said it was as if God is saying to all generations, stop, stop gloating over your brother's misfortune. Stop rejoicing over another's ruin. Stop boasting about another's distress. Stop taking advantage of those that are in calamity. Stop taking from those who have nothing just because you can and they can't hold it back from you. Judah was no saint as a nation. She was guilty of much wrong. And yet God basically tells Edom, part of your guilt is that you kicked Judah when she was down. I began to ask God, where do we in this world, are we like Edom? Where am I like Edom? Where are we as a church like Edom? You know, it's very easy at first to begin to see some of these areas, and it's easier to see in other people at first where they are like Edom. If I could step out of the story of Obadiah and apply this to us, I believe there is a great um, arrogance, I would call it, in our society. We are very good in our society at gloating over someone in the day of their misfortune. We are very good at rejoicing over the ruin of others. We are very good at piling on people when they're in a situation of distress. I call it arrogance because, because we do these things as, as if we ourselves have never messed up or made a mistake. We speak about situations and examine situations as if that would never happen to us because we are so much better than them. If you don't know what I'm talking about, let me ask you if you have heard anyone talking about a gorilla this week. Anyone heard about that? Have you heard about that? Arambe, the gorilla that was killed, a beautiful animal, a tragic death. But we as society have done what we are good at. The mother of the boy that fell in that gorilla moat is, is really in many pockets of society and on Facebook and Twitter and on the news the mother of that boy that fell in that gorilla moat is getting slaughtered. There are many that are, that are calling for her imprisonment even over this situation. In fact, I found out that the, that the local authorities are investigating the situation if they need to press charges against the mother. Why is this? Well, because there's a whole petition. There's a large petition with hundreds and hundreds of thousands of votes calling for this woman to be held responsible because it was her neglect, they say, that cost the life of that gorilla. 
There are people that have found out where this lady lives and they've, they've posted her address online and they've encouraged people to go outside of her home and to, to picket her house and to harass her. There are people that found out where this lady works and they've, 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 they've set up a petition and they've encouraged people to shut her business down. Don't give her any business. Shut her down. Why? Because we're graded as, society, as a society over kicking those who are down. Let me tell you as a parent, I can tell you what this mother experiences on almost a nightly basis. She probably wakes up with terror in her heart and nightmares over that situation on almost a nightly basis. There are some that said it was a neglect, which I personally know very few parents that haven't lost sight of their toddler for a moment or two and been in a state of panic. Anyone else ever lost sight of their toddler for a moment or two and been in a state of panic? Anyone that's a parent, the hands that didn't go up were not parents. Because we've all done it. We've all had those moments. We lost Landon right here at this National Zoo for five minutes. Scared us to death. Scared us to death. That's what happens. So I don't think it was neglect. But even if it was neglect, wouldn't the counsel here against Edom apply to our society as well? Don't kick the wounded when they are down. Don't act like you've never messed up as a parent or as a human being. Don't act like you've never had a negligent moment as an individual. But it's not just society in general that does this. Unfortunately, also Christianity does this as well. I haven't seen as many out here. You guys have more trees, so I don't think they put up as many billboards. But back in California, it seems there are billboards, billboards all over the place. When you have big, expanse, wide-open places in the valley there, they want to fill your visual sight lines, and so there's billboards everywhere. And back in California, we had a lot of billboards there. And one section of highway by where I lived, where the 99 and the 198 came together, if you've ever been to Central Valley, you know what I'm talking about. The 198 will take you up to the Sequoias. The 99 will take you up to Fresno and then into uh, Yosemite National Park and Kings Canyon National Park. You should all get familiar with these roads simply because they leave, lead to some of those beautiful places in the world and you should all take vacations there. Just not right now. Don't get up and leave at this moment. But on there at the crossroads of 198 and 99, there was a billboard, one going one way and one going the other way. And, and these billboards were put up by, by, by Christian groups and, and, and I know probably people that think they were doing a good service to humanity, but they were anti-abortion billboards. Now let me say I'm very anti-abortion. I remember when Christina and I thought early on in the pregnancy with Dayton, we thought that we had, we had lost him about eight or ten weeks uh, into the pregnancy and our hearts were just crushed. And we went to the doctor and, and there, was, there was this flashing light on the screen. I didn't know what the flashing light was. And then the doctor said, there's still a baby in there. That's your baby's heart. And from the mo that moment on, that flashing light, I fell in love with that flashing light, and I've been in love with him ever since. He was much easier to deal with when he was a flashing light than he is now, but I've been in love with him. <laughs> I've been in love with him ever since. But the doctor said to us, he said in that moment, he said, maybe what happened was maybe it was a twin that sack that had passed. And I remember after Dayton was born, sitting one Sabbath, we were sitting at lunch, and Dayton was sitting in his little, uh, in his actually still in his uh, car seat thing there. 
And I was looking at him, and I just began to weep. And Christina said, what's wrong? And I said to her, there could have been two. And ever since that time, I, my heart has just felt a whole different level to human life. And I'm one that believes that life is at conception. But all that said, I would drive down the highway and I would see these signs that said, you tore this life apart. And there was a picture of a baby being torn apart, uh, a fetus being torn apart. Or there was another that said, abortion will leave you feeling empty inside. And it was a picture of a woman, a young lady with tears running down her face, holding her belly. And you know, while I don't like abortion, I am disgusted by those signs. Because it, it is humanity kicking someone when they are down. And I had a friend will say, well, you know, the unborn need a voice too. And I, I said to them, I said, let God be their voices. Our voices should be used to minister and to love those who are still living. Love is not condoning of an action. Love is the expression of value of each individual, no matter how much we may agree or disagree with their decisions. We're good sometimes, even with Christ within Christianity, of kicking those who are down. I have three different friends. This isn't my notes, but I just am thinking about it now. I have three different friends that I know of very well, very close friends actually in my life, that have had an abortion. I've never known one of them not to go through significant depression afterwards. I don't find that it would have been healthy at all for me to say, hey, you know how wrong you were. You know how bad you were. And yet, and yet that, is, that is the attitude of Edom. While their brother is in misfortune or distress, even if it is a choice that, the, that Judah had made themselves, God confronts Edom for kicking them while they're down, for gloating over them in their distress. But it's not just Christians. It's not just society in general that does this. It can also be Adventist, isn't it? I'm reading the text. When I'm reading the text this week, I'm saying to God, okay, Jesus, teach me. I mean, I'm not out there attacking the mom whose kid fell into the gorilla pit. I'm not out there attacking the young woman that has had an abortion. In fact, I'm saying, come, I'll, we'll put our arms around you. We'll love you. We can walk through this. But I read the text, and I can't be so arrogant to think that I, too, at times, don't have the attitude of Edom. I, too, at times, don't have the, the gloating of Edom. And so I was asking Jesus, I was saying, Jesus, show me, bring to my mind where I act like Edom. And I realized an area that I do, and maybe because of our subculture, some of you have this experience as well. Where I act like Edom is that I sometimes tend to gloat over the misfortune of others' ignorance. And let me explain what I mean by that. I am a Seventh-day Adventist, which means I believe the message we share as a church is the end-time message for our time. I have no doubt in my mind about that. I don't question this at all. I, I used to, but I've, I've, I've wrestled with it. I've struggled with it. And, and I believe with all my heart this is the end-time message. This is the last message that God will bring to this world. With that knowledge, there comes an obligation, I believe, to teach the message that God has given to our church. With that knowledge, I believe there comes an obligation. And with that obligation, there come moments when, when we are confronted with the reality of having to, for lack of a better way of saying it, to, to prove something right or to prove something, something wrong. 
when we have a discussion when it comes to the Sabbath or the state of the dead or the second coming or, or the health message or, or one of these. And when I was asking Jesus to show me, where am I like Edom? Where do I have the attitude of the Edomites? God showed me that, that I am like the Edomites in my gloating over the misfortune of others' lack of understanding of Scripture. Don't raise your hand, but has anyone else ever smiled inside when they've proved Saturday was right and Sunday was wrong? You can just smile at me if you've had those moments, okay? There's a few of you smiling. Many of you smiling. Some of us maybe didn't even just smile inside. Maybe outwardly we smiled. Have there any of us that, that, that when we've talked about the health message some, and, 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 and even this, when we see kind of a lot of the world now embracing the health message, there's a lot of the world now embracing the health message, there's, there's this moment where we say, well, we've known that all along. There's almost this arrogance about it. Anyone else had those, those moments? We've had some of those moments. I recently was bragging, yes, bragging truthfully, about how I told someone, I was having a conversation with someone, and I told this someone, I said to them, as we were discussing, I said, I will give you my wife's car. I apologize to my wife in first service for doing this, but I told her her car was never in danger. But I told this individual, I will even write it down on paper, I will give you my wife's car. They would never want my car, that's why I didn't offer my car, it wasn't that I was being selfish. But I would give you my wife's car if you can find one text. I was having this conversation with this individual. If you can find one text that says Sunday was the Lord's Day. And I was telling someone this, and I, was, and I said to them, I said, yep, and they still haven't come back for the keys. It was this arrogance about it, this bragging about it. What I was bragging about is I was saying, look, I know truth, and someone else doesn't. It's an arrogant position that we sometimes carry. We are being like the Edomites in, in, in someone's ignorance. That's the attitude of an Edomite. In, in, we are lifting ourselves up in the moment of someone's misfortune of not knowing what we may understand or what we may know. Here's the problem with having the attitude of the Edomites. It is in direct opposition to the character of Jesus Christ. It is in direct opposition to the character of Jesus Christ. Jesus was the one who defended the weak when others were oppressing the weak. Jesus did not stand by aloof. In fact, there's a prophecy that points to Jesus, and Jesus said, this is speaking of me in Luke chapter uh, 4. If you want to turn your Bibles there to Luke chapter 4, verses 18 and 19. Jesus stood up in the temple, and he opened the scroll to, to the writings of the prophet Isaiah, and he found the place where it was written, and he said, speaking of Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 and 2, he said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, those who are less fortunate, to know right from wrong. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, those who have, who have fallen into sin or, or who have been bound by the, by the, by the wiles of the devil. To recover sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus never beat down those who found themselves in misfortune. 
He never beat down. He sought to, to relieve the burden of the oppressed. He sought to, 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 to defend the oppressed, to defend those who, who could not stand up for themselves. Jesus never triumphed over anyone's misfortune, even when the misfortune was the result of their own sin. John chapter 8, the famous story, of course, in John chapter 8 of the woman caught in adultery. The Bible reads in John chapter 8, beginning in verse 1, Jesus went to the Mount of Olives, and then early in the morning, Jesus came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. Verse 3, the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? They said to this to test him, that they might have some charges to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus set, stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. When people choose wrong, when people were in ignorance to Jesus, when people chose wrong, Jesus did not look for an opportunity to further make them feel bad about themselves. He did not gloat over them in their misfortune, even when there was, their misfortune was a result of their own hands. Don't raise your hand, but how many of you have thought like I have thought at times? Well, it serves them right. If they hadn't been there, then they wouldn't have been in that situation in the first place. I've thought that. I don't know if any of the rest of you have thought that. Jesus could have very easily said to this woman, you know, if you hadn't been committing adultery, then they never could have used you in this manner before me. But he didn't put any blame on her. He didn't, he didn't cast a stone at her. He didn't say, yep, she was sinning. Can we all agree adultery is sin? Can we amen to that? A little stronger amen to that, please? Got a little worried there. We can all agree that adultery is sin, that her actions were wrong, that her actions deserve, uh, her actions, uh, deserve a response. And yet, what does Jesus do? He doesn't say, you know what, you're right, I should be the first one to throw a stone because guess what? I said he who's without sin cast the first stone. I'm the only one here without sin, so I'm going to make sure we get this party started right. He didn't say that. He got down, he wrote in the sand, he got at her level. And then he, when he stands up, he says, where are those that condemn you? Neither do I condemn you. Jesus didn't say, okay, I'm going to look at your misfortune and, and pile on now in the moment. The Edomites were condemned because they looked down upon their brother who had been pillaged by Babylon and they said, how can we take advantage of their misfortune? How can we gloat about their misfortune? How can we say, well, it serves them right for who they are? When people were in ignorance, Jesus didn't gloat. He wept. Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19. Verse 41, and when Jesus drew near and saw the city, the Bible says, speaking of Jerusalem, he wept over it 
saying, would that you even, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. Jesus didn't gloat over the fact that they were ignorant. It made him weep that they had ignorance of the truth of who he was. It made them, him weep. I think of the statement by Mrs. White that she talks about when in one of the testimonies, I don't remember the exact spot, where she speaks about if we go to someone, if we have to confront someone in a wrong or in their air, we should go to them with tears in our, in our voice, with tears in our voice. And that always has struck me because, because you know, a lot of us get teary-eyed over things, but, but you know those moments when you really just are, man, there's just a sorrow in you, and you can't even speak because you're it's caught up in your voice, you know those, those moments? She talks about when we go to someone that, that is in wrong, that we should go to them with, with tears in our voice. And I think of that, it's not just about teary-eyed or I'm sad for a moment, but, but there's a deep sorrow. Jesus had a deep sorrow over others' ignorance. He wasn't gloating over their misfortune of what they did and did not know. The message of Obadiah, as I was reading through it, has opened my eyes to the ways that I am far too often like Edom. Yes, the way our society is too much like Edom. Yes, the way Christianity is too much like Edom. But the way I specifically am far too often like Edom. When I see those who are in an unfortunate situation, not having compassion, maybe even at times thinking to myself, well, they deserve it. Good for them. Good for them. But I don't want to be like Edom. I want to be like Jesus. You want to be like Jesus? I want to be like Jesus. I want to have the heart of Jesus. And the heart of Jesus is communicated into my life. Into my life is that when Satan has oppressed me in my sin, Jesus came and stood on my behalf. The, 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 the one I want to be like is like Jesus who, who, who when I've been ignorant and spoken out of line or, or not understood something, rather than than, than the Lord saying, you foolish, silly, silly boy. He's patiently come alongside me and said, let me teach you. Let me show you this truth. I want to be like Jesus, the one, the one who in my own actions lead me into a state of misfortune. Comes alongside me and picks me up. Not once, not twice, not three times, but time and time and time again. Much of our world, folks, is like Edom. Standing by while others are being oppressed. Gloating in the ruin of others. Rejoicing in the misfortune of others. Having a good laugh at the neglect or the foolishness of others. I don't want to be like our world. I want to be like Jesus. I don't want to be like Edom. I don't want to be an Edomite. I want to be a Christian, a follower of Jesus Christ. What about you? Let us pray. Lord Jesus, help us to not stand aloof while others are being oppressed and taken captive. Lord Jesus, help us to stop rejoicing over those experiencing misfortune. Jesus, help us not to gloat over another's ignorance. Jesus, help us not to give credence 
to the voices of violence and condemnation in our society. Jesus, give us the humble heart that you possess. Give us the loving heart that can only come from you. Give us awareness that when we have been oppressed by Satan, you have been our defender. Give us the awareness that when we have been sinful, Jesus has picked us up. That when we have been ignorant, the Holy Spirit has come and taught us the truth. Lord Jesus, because you have been much for us, let us not be much for the Edoms of Satan. Because you have been much for us, Jesus, make us your remnant, a people that truly represent you. In your name we pray, amen.